Hello and welcome to JOSPT Insights, the podcast that aims to help you translate quality research to quality practice. I'm Claire Ardern, the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Orthopaedic and Sports Physical Therapy. It's great to have you listening today. Today on JOSPT Insights, we have our monthly Journal Club edition, where we focus on research articles as the springboard for interviews with authors, educators, as well as clinical experts. My name is Dan Chapman, and I'm a physical therapist in Baltimore, Maryland. I'm Chelsea Kuman, a physical therapist and athletic trainer at True Sports Physical Therapy in Baltimore, Maryland as well. Joining us today is Dr. Merv Travers, who is a senior research scholar working in the area of low back pain, tendon pain, and exercise rehabilitation at the School of Physiotherapy, the University of Notre Dame, Australia. We begin with a discussion revolving around TENS, and we quickly move to what Dr. Travers refers to as the predictive processing lens, covering how this model allows us to better understand and treat our patients suffering from chronic pain. In our subsequent episode, we'll take the framework from our discussion here and work through clinical examples to assist clinicians in applying this framework and help their patients suffering from persistent pain. Dr. Travers, thank you so much for joining us on the show. It is a pleasure to have you. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be invited. Can you give us a little refresher on TENS and how it's supposed to influence pain? TENS is a method of applying electrical stimulation through the skin, and the intention is to stimulate non-noxious afferents, with the idea being that they in some way stop nociceptive activity at the dorsal horn. So it's this kind of pain gate idea that maybe many of us will learn as undergrads, is, is part of it. It's not the only kind of mechanism that, that's out there um, regarding it, but that, that's the intention. And, and so can you just give us a quick recap of, of that Cochrane review and, and why they couldn't support either stance on the use of TENS? So it was by Gibson, by Will Gibson, who's a, he's actually a colleague of mine at the University of Notre Dame. So he led, you know, a really nice team. They did a really nice job on their overview and brought together and synthesized eight or nine systematic reviews, over 50 RCTs. And you'd hope with that much data, you know, it's, it's over 2,800 patients. You'd hope we will say, look, this is the estimate. We, we think it works or not. And we're pretty confident. But the, the, the situation is, is that the state of the data that they bring in to the review is such that we can't make any comment or any kind of confident estimate as to whether it works or not. So it's not an issue with the review. The review is really nicely done. Where we are is that the state of the existing data from RCTs is so varied and and often very biased and from very small studies and has a number of methodological and reporting issues. That means we really can't rely on it. I really didn't want to say, hey, look, more research is needed. And we highlight you know, five different areas that basically say, if you're going to go and do a TENS or CT, control for all the known biases, and we've shown that, um, you know, including blinding, for example. You, know, you want to do large studies, maybe multi-center. And a big thing with TENS is you want to apply it in the way that it's intended to be applied in the real world. So patients or participants applying it on themselves repeatedly, maybe several times a day, and actually recording their pain whilst doing it and trying to perform tasks, rather than saying, come into the clinic once a week and we'll measure your pain score and say, was it better this week? Because that's not really consistent with how you think TENS would operate anyway. And then you've got to look at a wider view of pain and do we plausibly believe that that TENS could be you know, the, the, the panacea that we're looking for in this kind of scenario we see ourselves with, with, you know, persisting pain around the world being highly problematic. And so, you know, you can make an argument that perhaps, you know, there's, there's a long history of, of reductionistic kind of singular treatments or singular RCTs that 
you know, show little to no benefit. And maybe that has to do with the fact they are by their very nature, not necessarily aligned with how we think pain kind of works. So before we go further, can you catch us up on what our current understanding is regarding how pain does work? So at all times, our understanding of pain is evolving. And, and, you know, we've come to this position that recognizes that the role of the central nervous system is probably very important. And there are multiple different kind of uh, frameworks that kind of make that uh, kind of explicit. And also this idea of a person who is uh, situated within their world and environment, you know. So what we're saying is correct now or we think now might, of course, need to be revised in the future. But at the least, if we align with the contemporary understanding, we have testable and usable hypotheses for uh, both the clinic and research environments. I'm very fortunate to be part of a, a research team. Over the last couple of years, we've spent a lot of time delving through this idea of um, pain as a percept or a conscious experience. So much like sound or, or, or hearing or, or vision or taste, for example, we know a lot about how they are kind of generated and modulated. And you know, maybe we can take what we understand from those different areas of percepts and, and, and conscious experience and apply that lens to pain. And so with that in mind, there's a framework called hierarchical predictive processing. We just call it PP for, for short. And, and this seems to explain a lot about how the central nervous system operates and also helps make sense of a lot of these percepts. Now, I can't be so bold as to in any way suggest that this is the definitive answer as to how pain works, but it draws from a lot of other areas of research and it seems to make a lot of sense based on our current understanding and allows us to view pain very differently. And it starts with an understanding that the central nervous system might not actually operate in the way that we, you know, may have traditionally been thought with this idea of initiating events in the periphery that come uh, in through the peripheral nervous system into the central nervous system up to uh, the brain via the spinal cord. And then, you know, there's a scrutinization process that happens there. We may need to start thinking that the, the script has been flipped a little bit and actually that a lot of our percepts are generated and biased towards predictions uh, based on previously held information within our system. And so for me, this really changes how you start looking at pain. Right. So we know that pain just isn't about peripheral inputs, but can you go more into predictive processing, maybe give an example of it? How does the central nervous system play a role in that? Probably the best way is through analogy. So I'm sure we've all done this. You know, I drive to work and I pull into the car park and I turn the engine off and I say, was I even paying attention? And what's happened there is I've probably driven along the same route at the same time with probably the same people from my same suburb and in their cars uh, at the same time. And all of that information is coming through. But my system isn't just sitting there passively receiving that. Because it's so familiar to me, I have a model in my mind of what my route to work looks like. And so my central nervous system is constantly making predictions about sensory information that's going to be coming in. And if that matches, if the incoming information matches all those predictions, well, then it maybe doesn't rouse my conscious awareness so much. Because you think about how difficult it would be to constantly have to deal with all of the information com coming in computationally for your brain. That would be quite the challenge. But then, you know, the same, on the same day, I could drive home and I notice, you know, my neighbors trimmed his hedges. 
since I left this morning, right? So how is it that I drive home? I'm not really sure if I was paying attention, you know, but I, I noticed this trivial task or trivial um, a bit of information. And that's because I had a model in my mind of what my neighbor's garden looks like. Suddenly the incoming visual inputs are slightly different. So there's a, what we call a prediction error signal. And that gets sent up to the central nervous system to revise my model or my understanding of, of what my neighbor's garden looks like. And so that's how we got to start thinking about how perception happens. And, and we got to think about how our central nervous system comes to a point of, uh, of, of pain. And what might be really useful is I play a little audio clip to kind of show people the uh, importance of internally held information. I'm going to play you a, a, a clip and I want you to tell me afterwards, what does it sound like to you? That would be R2-D2 yep. from Star Wars. <laughs> okay. So your system has no information on which to base its predictions. So you receive that input and it's a jumbled mess. Now I'm going to give you some information on which to, to base your prediction. Jazz and swing fans like fast music. Did you get that? Now I'm going to play you the exact same file, the first one again. Jazz and swing fans like fast music. Whoa, this is yeah. Cool. yeah, that's right. This is dope. Yeah. <laughs> so, so what that puts in context is, is that the information already held in your system, within your central nervous system, is absolutely central to the generation of, of a percept. You know, it's it's funny we're we're talking about percepts and that that hearing, taste, and pain, for instance, can be thought of similarly. And and you're you giving us the normal version of that audio clip completely changed the way I heard the initial clip once you, you once you replayed it. But I I don't know. Can you talk a bit more about how that translates uh, to our sensation of pain? So the implication here is that. You know, pain isn't uh, as an experience initiated by peripheral events like nociception that are that are predictions that are generated from previously held information within our system are incredibly meaningful and they actually bias and mold our conscious experiences. And so these top down predictions are really important. You know, if you think about low back pain and out there in the world where the back is viewed as being kind of vulnerable, weak and, you know, easy to injure. And people say things like, once you hurt your back, it's it's never going to get better. And there's such strong societal messaging and there's such strong biomedical messaging um, from healthcare interactions that really kind of stick with people. That really seems to me like a really suboptimal position to base one's predictions about the kind of their bodily integrity or the predictions about pain and you know we have to remember these predictions are not just happening at a kind of conscious level but we're also talking about lower levels within our central nervous system you know down as far even as maybe our dorsal horn of our spinal cord that those synapses are making predictions about what information is going to be coming to them from the periphery what it means for me is it gives a framework that really makes clear the biological grounding or basis of our beliefs about pain and how they actually interact and mold and shape our conscious experiences. So people's understanding about pain, their fears, their worry, all of those things, those labels, they're not, you know, these siloed you know slice of the biopsychosocial model that you silo off and say hey i'm just going to talk to this person about their pain and then i'm going to treat them because 
The, that information that they hold in their system, both implicitly and explicitly, likely is a source of generating their predictions. So their past experiences, their beliefs, and their context are, are going to all influence the predictions that their system makes and likely mold their conscious experience of pain. Okay, so how do we think about this in the framework that you mentioned earlier? How do we put this all together in the context of a patient? Putting all of this kind of area of research together into some kind of framework or some kind of pathway that clinicians can follow, we think there are four kind of mutually reinforcing steps that you're trying to help the person understand that it's safe to move, for them to feel that it's safe to move, experience that it's safe to move, and finally reinforce safety through repeated and progressive loading. Four kind of sequential, but also mutually reinforcing steps. And so the first one is to understand that it's safe to move. And so when we think about, you know, having an internal model that's in, informed by your past experiences, the context, uh, your beliefs, thoughts, and explicit thoughts and beliefs, all the things you've been told all the time, it's really a simple way of interrogating or getting to the bottom of someone's internal model it might just be asking them to explore their explicit thoughts and beliefs around their back. You know, someone says, I've got eight out of 10 pain and it hurts, you know, those kind of 24-hour patterns, that description of pain, that doesn't tell you anything about their internal model. And we might need, the only in that we have is to actually ask them about the kind of cognitive aspects involved, like the meaning of pain or does pain equal damage or, or why they think they're never going to get better, for example. So we're not saying that we're going to deliver a didactic kind of science lesson around principles of pain neuroscience, let's say, but rather going to explore the ideas that we think are the, the beliefs and thoughts that we think inform that person's model of themselves. See how they frame, they understand their pain so that we can help them make sense of their presentation in a way that's intended to decrease uh, their anxiety, reduce their fear, build confidence and promote self-efficacy and kind of restore hope that they can get back to, you know, a better circumstance with their, with their pain. We need to address these unhelpful beliefs and misconceptions about pain and reframe them as a need to protect the body that is modifiable, that we can, your system has learned to be overprotective, but we can also hopefully retrain the system to be less protective. So we first have to understand where the patient is coming from, what their thoughts on pain are, get an idea of what their internal model of the world is, their suburban Australia that they're driving home in, if you will, um, and how pain is involved there. So what's next? The second is helping them feel that it's safe to move. This is the perceptual side of things that's kind of grounded in the idea that in order to update someone's internal model, they need precise and trustworthy signals okay, from that body part. What we mean by this is your central nervous system is constantly being bombarded with lots of different sources of information. So imagine that we're in a party together and the, the music is really loud and we're trying to have a conversation and you're, you're working really hard to kind of recover what I'm saying from the auditory input because it's being clouded out by all the other noise that's happening. So your system might actually downweight the auditory information coming from me and Upweight, for example, visual information like my facial expression and the shape of my mouth to give you information about the things that I'm actually saying. And so your central nervous system, when it comes to kind of noxious inputs and, and information that might be relevant to pain, it does exactly that same kind of computation and weighting. So when you look at people with low back pain, chronic non-specific low back pain in particular, 
what you see is these people tend to be more sensitive to noxious stimulation of the back. So you, they've got lower thermal, electrical pressure kind of, you know, uh, thresholds. Uh, or if you give them the same kind of stimulus as a person who doesn't have chronic nonspecific low back pain, they kind of report it as being kind of, you know, less pleasant and, and more painful. So they kind of upweight or, or turn the gain up on noxious information. Again, that's information that's confirming perhaps those um, implicit and explicit beliefs that their, their system is in some way compromised. But the other thing is they tend to kind of demonstrate this characteristic hypoesthesia where you actually, if you give them non-noxious inputs like, you know, vibration or get them to try and detect movement or look at their kind of postural positions and various different things like that, the gain seems to be turned down on those activities or information relating to those activities. And so what that means is kind of a, a weighting or a computation that's happening where they've turned up the volume, if you will, on the um, information that's noxious that might confirm their uh, beliefs that they're broken, and they have downweighted the information that you know is non-noxious. So, what does this all mean for your patient in uh, who's experiencing? persisting pain well it kind of means this we if we look at chronic non-specific low back pain because it's just a nice example to use you can suggest that one's pain is an unhelpful perceptual inference that's generated by like an unnecessarily sticky what we call pain expectant internal model and so essentially if a person expects pain both on a conscious level but more i'm thinking here on sub kind of conscious levels lower in the central nervous system that they expect pain, then pain-related sensory information is going to be preferentially kind of weighted within the system. And especially this is the case if non-noxious information, so non-pain-related information is effectively deemed noisy or untrustworthy. So the gain, the volume is turned down and that it's, it's less capable of influencing and, and changing the internal model. And to me, this is really important. Like it was actually a really kind of important needle that flicked over for me and my understanding of pain when it was, it was one of my colleagues, uh, Ben Wand at the University of Notre Dame, who kind of, you know, spoke to me about this one time and explained it to me. And I said, suddenly this kind of makes sense because as a clinician out there in the world, I was, you know, seeing these papers that say, look, if people with chronic low back pain, they have compromised proprioception or reduced tactile acuity, or they're more sensitive to thermal stimuli, for example. And I was like, well, that's really interesting. But, you know, in the clinic, what do I do with that? But really, if you take a broader view of this, you step back and take a broader view of this, what this means in the predictive processing world is that there's an issue with how they perceive that body part. And there's an inf issue with how they weight information coming from the periphery. And what we see is that people who have pain, particularly uh, pain for a long time, seem to attribute weight to information that is noxious or that confirms that position that their system is compromised or broken in some way. So improve the patient's understanding of their body part. What does that look like besides just education? All of these kind of perceptual things matter. If you look at the field of embodied cognition, information from the body is used to predict the physical capacity of the body. So for example, the gradient of a hill looks steeper to people who are tired or of low fitness 
if they've got pain when they walk, they perceive target distances as being further away. So their body is, or their central nervous system is, 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 is using their pain as part of that kind of scrutinization about how far I can actually walk, you know, how capable my body actually is, for example. So if you have a body part where the sensory information from it is kind of compromised, this lost representation, it's not going to tell you, hey, my back is all good here. It's, it's important to try and think about integrating this part of practice to help the person feel that body part, reconnect with that body part. You can maybe do this by reframing some existing te- therapies. So it's not like, hey, I need to go and learn all this new stuff. But for example, you might use some small, precise, repeated movements to train that person to delineate maybe their lumbar spine movement from the thoracic spine movement, for example. Or if you think about, you know, doing a glute stretch, you know, someone with low back pain, like stretching their glutes is unlikely to do anything mechanically to the muscles, et cetera, but it will give a sensory input from a body part. So maybe they stretch their, their glutes, they, they focus on attend to that non-noxious input coming through rather than the noxious input. And they're, they're learning to delineate different sensations from different parts of the body. So maybe that we use what we already do to uh, in a different framework. All right, so we got step one, understanding it's safe to move. Step two, feeling that it's safe to move. What you got up for step three? I think it's really important that they experience that they're safe to move. When we learn about the central nervous system, or certainly when I learned about the nervous system in, in, in university, we kind of had this motor system and this sensory system, and they were kind of different lanes on a highway. Whereas actually, it seems that our movement is enslaved by our desire and need for sensory information, or at least to confirm and sample uh, sensory information. And so what I mean by that is if you take the example I gave you, you know, we're in a party and we're talking and it's loud and it's hard to hear me, maybe, you know, as I said, you might weight information differently and look at my mouth, but the action of moving your eyes to look at my mouth, that is using your system to sample and alter the information that's coming in. You might also step closer, all right? So that would be using your body again to alter the incoming information. You might turn your head slightly to position your ear in the path of kind of what I'm saying a little bit again. That would be using your body to influence the incoming sensory information. Movement, to a certain extent, is a way of learning about the information from the outside world in the example I've just given you. But let's think about somebody who's in pain. Let's think about a, you know, a hypothetical patient with persisting low back pain, and they might have one of these, you know, different terms that may have been used uh, in the past, like a maladaptive pattern and various different things. We might have someone who, who has persisting low back pain and they have a tendency to co-activate all their muscles and they're kind of super stiff around their trunk. Now, it may be that they're using their body to sample information and to learn about themselves. Now, it's a bit kind of ironic and paradoxical because that that co-activation, that stiffening of the trunk, that might increase the loading on the local tissues, thereby increasing the nociceptive or noxious input that's already been weighted and is confirming their prediction. So they may be using it to increase the noxious information coming into the system. Now, it could also be that they're stiffening in order to not move very much through the system. So if you ask that person to flex and bend forward, for example, you'll limit the movement enormously by stiffening and coactivating. So it could be that by limiting the movement through the system, they're also 
limiting the capacity for non-noxious information to flow through all that proprioceptive information, etc., to come through. So either way, whether they're increasing the loading or they are reducing the movement, they're using their body to influence and sample and learn about the body. So maybe you say, okay, look, how can I get this patient to relax their tummy and breathe into their belly and you get them to lean forward again? Okay, so you get them to relax, do some stuff that relaxes their tummy and they bend forward and they move differently. If they move differently, then the incoming signal and the predictions won't match, right? So there will be, hopefully, you're trying to generate a prediction error, a positive one. And if that goes up and refines their model and they experience a little less pain, they're like, actually, you know what? That was a little bit better. Okay, well, now, now we're talking. Can you see how actually you actually bent further forward or whatever your story from your, the understanding step is can be reinforced? It's a bad experiential learning, and it, but it's two things. If you go back up the chain, I, to me, it's, it's reinforcing that understanding that you're safe to move. But the other really important thing is that movement then informs your exercise program. Like, I mean, that new movement pattern is what you want that person to repeatedly expose to. Okay, so you're working on updating their understanding of their internal model and and how pain factors into that. You're trying to reconnect them with this body part in a way that is promoting non-noxious streams of information, such as proprioception, for example. And then you're trying to find ways for them to experience movement in a way that reinforces all of this. So showing them that they can move in a pain-free or pain-reduced manner in a way that works towards reworking and updating that, that pain-expectant model that you were talking about. And, and finally, reinforcing all of this repeatedly and progressively in a way that is directed towards their specific goals. The aim of treatment should be to drive the system to update the model and shift towards a kind of formulation that the body is healthy, strong, okay. And to do that, we need to, in some ways, positively maybe introduce some prediction errors. And we need to provide or endeavor to provide the system with precise and trustworthy, non-noxious sense information that supports this model that the body isn't broken. And so this can be done within a framework of what my colleagues have termed benevolent challenge that are our job is not to necessarily treat the patient or, or administer treatments, but to create an environment and a framework where there's benevolent or kind of well-meaning challenge to their internal model that we use or that we can achieve via cognitive, perceptual, and experiential streams. And so that is part one of our discussion with Dr. Merv Travers, where we focus on understanding the predictive processing lens and how to use it as a framework for treating patients, particularly those struggling with persistent pain. Be sure to check out episode two, where we dive into how to approach these discussions with your patients, how to handle flare-ups, and what this all looks like as part of a clinical case. Lastly, we'd like to give credit to and thank Robert E. Ramez for access to the sine wave speech pattern shown earlier in the episode. And thank you for listening to JOSPT. listening to this episode of JOSPT Insights. For more discussion of the issues in musculoskeletal rehabilitation that are relevant to your practice, subscribe to JOSPT Insights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google, or your favourite podcast app. If you like JOSPT Insights, help others find us. Tell your friends and colleagues and rate and review us. To keep up to date with all the latest JOSPT content, be sure to follow us on Twitter. We're at JOSPT. 
and Facebook. We're JOSPT Official. Talk with you next time. Listener.